The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 21. We'll be reading through verse 29 this evening. The word of the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, But not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, but they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. We'll be reading through verse 39 this evening. The word of our God. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. If you were going to organize all of human life around just ten fundamental laws, would you use one of those laws to command that children should honor their father and their mother? The living God does that. Furthermore, when the Lord promised the coming Messiah through the Old Testament promise, the Old Testament prophets, he promised that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And one of the things John was called to do was this, 
John would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What are we to make then when we consider that some of the most famous and most influential Christians in all of church history defied their parents while they were still relatively young? Think of St. Francis. Francis left his wealthy home in spite of his father's fury, and he did so to try to live a life as simply as possible to imitate Jesus Christ. And thousands of people then, and thousands over the centuries, have been inspired by Francis to do something like that, to simply say, Jesus' call on my life must come first, let goods and kindred go. Or perhaps better known in our circles, consider Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther infuriated his father by giving up a promising, potentially very lucrative career in the law in order to pursue a religious life by becoming an Augustinian monk. The story of Hans Luther, that is Martin's father, is actually quite common. Uh, he had been raised as the son of a farmer, but he left the farm behind and headed off to the copper mines in the hopes of advancing himself and his family financially. To a large degree, Hans succeeded. He was first a laborer, but then he became a foreman, and eventually he would own a piece of this mine. He became a capitalist, to use an anachronistic term. And yet, Hans's hopes were for his family were ultimately not set on the labor of his own hands, it was set on his son, Martin. See, Martin would have the educational opportunities that Hans, as a son growing up on a farm, never had. He would become a lawyer. And with that, he would advance the financial and the social status of the Luther family permanently. And then one day, it all came crashing down. All of his hopes would collapse when in 1505, Hans would be utterly devastated to learn that his son had entered a religious order without even consulting with him first. You know, we tend to think of Martin Luther as a great hero of the faith. We tell his stories, we're inspired by him. But what would you have thought of Martin Luther in 1505 if you were talking to his father while his father cried his eyes out over Luther squandering the opportunity that Hans himself never had and squandering the opportunity to advance the family's fortunes. While both Luther and St. Francis would mature and change in their views of what the Lord was calling them to do as disciples, they had both grasped something at a relatively young age that is vitally important. They needed to honor their father and mother, but it was more important to follow Jesus Christ than it was to win the praise even of their parents. This is what tonight's passage is ultimately all about. See, Jesus is preparing his inner circle of disciples to go out into the world for the very first time independent of him on the very first missionary journey. And our Lord has already warned them that they will face severe persecution for speaking in Christ's name. As R.T. France puts it, to represent Jesus is to accept their share 
in the way that he is treated by a hostile world. Beloved, let me say that is still true today. That's not just something isolated for the 12 in the first century. Those who stand for Jesus and speak clearly for Jesus can expect hardship and even persecution in this present age. And yet, as difficult as the persecution of strangers can be for us to endure, the far greater challenge for almost all of us comes not from those we don't know who hate us, it comes from those who love us, those we're connected to by blood, who do not share our faith in Jesus Christ. The key point of tonight's sermon is simply this. Jesus is worth it. That's the key thing. If you only remember one thing, please remember that. Jesus is worth it. But we're going to look at tonight's sermon under four main headings. First, the gospel brings conflict. Second, Jesus demands radical loyalty. Third, take up your cross. And fourth, the paradox of getting ahead. I said those kind of quickly, so let me give those to you again. These are the four main headings that we're going to use to look at this evening's passage. First, the gospel brings conflict. Second, Jesus demands radical loyalty. Third, take up your cross. And fourth, the paradox of getting ahead. We begin with the truth that the gospel brings conflict. Look at verse 34 with me. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. See, Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's a misunderstanding that each and every one of us would have had. He is, after all, the Prince of Peace. Yet in a surprising twist, Jesus is solemnly telling us that he is coming, and in his coming he is bringing a fresh and sometimes bitter conflict into our lives. Jesus does not merely come to bring peace. Our Lord's words, do not think that I have come, or or, do not suppose that I have come, you'll have that in some of your translations, are the exact parallel to his words toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. There Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to abolish the law. He's telling us about his purpose. And that's what he's doing here as well. Twice in this verse, and again in verse 35, Jesus says either, I have come, or I have not come. And the repetition makes clear that Jesus is speaking about the purpose of his own mission. Yet unlike our Lord in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I have not come to abolish the law, we we can easily get that. These words are surprising to us. Even after we've heard them before, we don't expect Jesus to tell us these sorts of things. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Those words still have the power to shock us, and if they don't shock you a little bit, you're you're reading them too fast. These words of Jesus still have the power to shock us even today. 
For one thing, both the Old Testament prophets, but also the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke, that they tell us that Jesus has come to bring peace on earth to people of goodwill. Jesus, as I say, is the Prince of Peace. So what exactly is going on? Well, we do want to acknowledge up front that Jesus has come to bring peace. In particular, he has come to establish peace between all those whom God has given to him, we call those the elect, right, and God himself. But in the process of establishing true and everlasting peace with us, Jesus' way of doing that brings hostility of the world upon him. And therefore, it should not surprise us that the world that hates Jesus will hate us as well. Because Christ's approach to establishing peace between man and God involves conflict between Jesus and the world, it necessarily involves conflict between those who cling to Jesus and those who cling to worldliness. It really is that simple. Worldliness and godliness will always be in conflict with one another. They cannot peacefully coexist. This leaves all true disciples in the same position. Because of Christ, we have peace with God. And because of Christ, we have hostility from the world. Jesus wants us to know this so that we will be prepared to deal with the opposition when it inevitably comes. This is an important thing, by the way, when you teach other people, but we can see Jesus doing it for us. Wrong expectations cause a lot of trouble. Jesus does not want us to have wrong expectations. Now see, if we come to Christianity imagining that following Jesus is going to result in us having peace with everybody, every single time following Jesus results in us having conflict in this world, we'll think we're on the wrong path. But we'll be tempted to turn back, not only because we don't like the opposition, but obviously the opposition, particularly conflict within a family, demonstrates we're pursuing this religious thing in the wrong way. Let me give you a very specific, concrete example from our Presbyterian history. Uh, In the late 19th century and the early 20th century, there was an enormous crisis that ran through American Presbyterianism I speak here in particular of the Northern Presbyterian Church. It was a time when simply telling the obvious truth that increasingly the pulpits of the Northern Presbyterian Church were being filled with, by unbelievers was something that people wouldn't do. And that doing so could get you in a lot of trouble. Just pointing out what was obvious or should have been obvious to everybody Many Presbyterian leaders were so committed to not rocking the boat that it became unsafe to simply speak the obvious truth. So there were ordained ministers who denied the Bible's the word of God. They denied the substitutionary atonement. They denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the very elders and ministers who had sworn to defend the purity and the peace of the church. Most of them sat on their hands and they did nothing. In fact, what they would say is, this was the slogan that went around, the Presbyterian Church is fundamentally sound. It was a lie. 
but it was a very comfortable lie that kept people from having to deal with the hard truth. But the world had gotten into the church, and the world and the people of God will be in conflict with one another. And when a few courageous souls dared to speak the truth, their words were drowned out by a chorus which proclaimed the happy lie. More than drowned out, they themselves were attacked as being troublers of the church. After all, they're supposed to work for the peace of the church, right? What's a little bit of doctrine about Jesus among friends? Well, they should have been expecting such attacks, and beloved, so should we. In pursuing organizational peace and unity over loyalty to Jesus Christ, the Northern Presbyterian Church ultimately ended up with neither. Today, we need a flow chart to keep track of all the Presbyterian denominations. I mean, it's a puzzle because they keep splitting. And the mainline PCUSA not only ordains practicing homosexuals today, it is also ordained ministers who do not even believe in a personal God. See, see, that's what happens when you say loyalty to Jesus can take a back seat. The train never actually stops. It keeps moving in directions that people couldn't even have imagined just a generation earlier. Now, what I want you to grasp is this does not mean that the PCUSA is so inclusive that it accepts everyone. In fact, you cannot be ordained in a PCUSA uh, presbytery if you happen to hold to the biblical and traditional view that elders are supposed to be godly, mature men. Right? See, division will always come. That's not the question. The question is, is when division comes, will you be on the world's side or will you be on the Lord's side? That's the question we have to answer. This is a good time, therefore, to ask ourselves, where am I standing this evening? And not where people were standing 100 years ago. Where am I standing as I sit here in church and hear God's word? Am I unreservably standing with Jesus, or am I holding back, putting first the kingdom of God, because it seems a bit too costly to me right now, particularly with people I care about. What will will make us willing to joyfully endure the hostility of the world? It's an important question. Well, we're being told by Jesus we need to do that, but what will make us willing to do that? Including the world that finds its way inside the church. And the answer is simple. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus is worth it. Not a program. Jesus is worth it. Jesus continues, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, the word that the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates set here. Um, actually also means divide or separate. It carries both of those ideas. So if you're reading the ESV with me, which is a great translation, it's why we use it in this church, please note that Christ's ultimate goal 
is not to stir up conflict in families. We're talking about his purpose. His goal isn't to stir up conflict. Christ's goal is that we would be reconciled to his Father and that we would come to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. That's the goal. But in order to save the elect, Christ has to separate his people, the sheep, from the goats. See, division is part of God's plan because from the very beginning he came to save the sheep. He did not come to save the goats. As we increasingly love God and devote ourselves to following Jesus Christ, this will necessarily result in division from those who are clinging to the world but is passing away. Let me say it again. Worldliness and godliness cannot peacefully coexist. And Jesus loves us so much that he wants to prepare us for this jarring and painful reality, a reality that many of you in this church already experience. For many Christians, not just for some, following Jesus will divide a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Indeed, Jesus says your enemies will be the members of your own household. This is what Jesus is plainly telling us. The gospel brings conflict. But I don't think you have to be a particularly astute observer of the American church to realize that the American church is filled with Christians who want to deny this very truth. They they imagine that there's a way to be faithful to Jesus without experiencing this conflict at all. And and that's not just out there in those other circles. I, I speak of this in broadly reformed, conservative, Bible-believing circles, this very lie has crept in. Uh, I'll give you an example. It's one that I particularly hear from my brothers in the Presbyterian Church in America, but we ought not to imagine that we're immune to this. Many of my fellow ministers in the PCA seem to imagine that if the world treats us badly, that this is probably because we have failed to be winsome enough in our approach to sharing the gospel and in the way that we live in the public square. Do you understand what they're saying? If there's conflict, you could have gotten past that conflict if you were just nicer, funnier, changed your tone a little bit. Right? That, that's a very popular idea that has made its way not only through the American church broadly, but even into our conservative reform circles. Now, if that's true with the world, it's doubly true when it comes to the members of our own family. Uh, I have met and spoken with many people who just not only assume, but openly state that, that if doing something that you think is right for following Jesus causes division and pain in your family, then by definition, it must be wrong. Now, that obviously, I, I want to say unintentionally, I don't think people mean to do this, but obviously that's a form of unintentional idolatry. It's to put your family members in the place that belongs to God and to God alone. Now, Jesus does call us, remember last week, to be as wise as serpents. We are to spread the gospel in ways that do not cause unnecessary offense. We are to pray for and to work for healthy and life-giving relationships within our families. That's all true, right? Maybe the reason why people are offended when I share the gospel with them is me, right? It it really can be, and you too, because we're all still sinners. All of that is true, 
Nevertheless, as R.T. France points out, the cause of the hostility which Jesus is foretelling is not the disciples' own failures or lack of diplomacy. Even if they are as wise as serpents, they will be unable to avoid this hostility while remaining faithful disciples because the cause of the hostility is Jesus himself. Your unbelieving family members might not say that, but Jesus is saying that. That the people don't want the true Jesus of the Bible, and they can't get their hands on Jesus, so they put their hands on you. Uh, J.C. Ryle puts it well. We are not to think it strange if the gospel rends asunder families and causes estrangement between the nearest relations. It is sure to do so in many cases because of the deep corruption of man's heart. Uh, Please mark that. I keep saying the gospel causes division. The gospel causes opposition. We should realize what's really causing the division, the opposition, is the fallen human heart that won't embrace the gospel and that won't follow Jesus Christ. And so Ryle says, the reason is because of the deep corruption of man's heart. So long as one is resolved to keep his sins and another is desirous to give them up, the result of preaching the gospel must be division. So I have titled this section, The Gospel Causes or Brings About Conflict. That is what Jesus is promising us. And beloved, Jesus knows what he's talking about. But we do want to say With great gratitude, Jesus does not say here that everyone who follows him will find themselves split off from all their family members. Certainly not. Indeed, many of the apostles in the days of the early church took their spouses with them on their travels. In fact, Jesus frequently, out of his grace, works in families. When he calls one person out of the family into his kingdom, it is not at all unusual that either quickly or later he will call more members as well. And when God brings people into the church, he commonly works through those covenant relationships so that the children of believers growing up and hearing God's word will come by his grace to true and saving faith. Uh, Just this morning, because we couldn't worship next door, uh, Kristen and I were worshiping at First Church OPC in Merrimack. And and there they had a baptism of this beautiful month-old baby. I love baptisms. But what really moved me about this baptism was the child was there, the older brothers and sisters were there, the parents were there, and both sets of grandparents were there too. All believers belonging to Bible-believing Reformed churches in our area. And we can see this picture of God working through families. So Jesus is not warning us here that we are always going to have conflict with our family members, all of them. In fact, when we're having conflict with our family members, we need to remember they might be one of God's sheep that God hasn't called yet. We ought to be long-suffering toward them as we model Christ's willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And yet, that is not the only way our Lord works. There are also many families, including many families in this church, which are divided between those who love Jesus and those who don't, or at least have not yet come to. 
As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, in these divided families, the believer will sooner or later face the challenge from the unbelieving loved ones. Choose me and my ways over Jesus and his ways. But if you love me, you'll choose me. And Jesus is on the other side saying exactly the same thing. Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will choose me. You will choose me and my ways over your unbelieving family members and their ways. And in fact, you need that to do that if you were to be my disciple at all. We can see the radical nature of Christ's claims in verse 37. Uh, please look there, there with me. Verse 37. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Uh, I hope as you read that, you, you get a sense of the astonishing claim of personal authority that Jesus is making. He's making it quite openly. It might be helpful to consider something the Lord says back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Lord tells Eli concerning his sons that did not walk in his ways, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be despised. Do you hear that Jesus is actually saying the same thing in Matthew? And, and by doing that, what Jesus is saying is this, your loyalty to me is identical to your loyalty to God. You cannot be loyal to God, not loyal to me. If you are loyal to me, if you embrace me, if you follow me, then you are embracing and following the living God. It's an astonishing claim to personal authority. See, Jesus is saying loud and clear that what matters most in life is allegiance to him. Allegiance to Jesus must come at the top of every priority list. And once again, this is a good time to ask ourselves that pointed question. Is Jesus at the top of my priority list? Or do I sometimes treat Jesus like he's a product from Procter & Gamble, who's going to make my life a little bit better? You know what it should be? How do we get there? Beloved, we get there by reminding ourselves that Jesus is worth it. I hate to say this with all these loving parents here, but there is a regrettable truth. Parents often inadvertently actually discourage their children from doing this, from putting Christ first in their lives. For example, Christian parents understand that it is good for some people to become missionaries to India and to Pakistan. And, and the problem is, is when their, ch their children start showing interest in perhaps doing that, not that that's the best thing to do, but they think that's where God is calling them, Parents also prefer for their husband to have, I mean, for their children to live closer at home and have a nice house and a nice job and a white picket fence, and they get to visit the grandchildren. And even without thinking about it, we can end up discouraging our children from putting Christ first, because what we're really quietly saying is, you ought to put yourself first and us second, and God will be happy with third place. 
They're perhaps well-meant, but still essentially selfish attempts of either parents or children to dissuade the disciple from seeking first the kingdom of God must be resolutely resisted. That is what Jesus demands of us as parents, and that is what Jesus demands of us as children. See, Jesus is making a truly astonishing demand on our lives, and beloved Jesus is worth it. Intriguingly, Jesus does this very thing in his own life a number of times. Uh, you can think of him the, the time when uh, he stays behind in the temple and his parents get irate with him because they're walking home. And when they find him, Jesus says, did you not know I must be about my father's business? Or, or think later on. Uh, there's a time later in the gospel while Jesus was still speaking with the people and there's a crowd all around him, his mother and his brothers come to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And they tell Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to seek you. Do you remember how Jesus responded? Jesus did not drop everything to run out to see his mother and his brothers. Rather, Jesus says, looking at the people around him. The one who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And see, Jesus did honor his father. Jesus did honor his mother. Jesus did care for his brothers. But Jesus put first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. That's what he's calling us to do as well. Here is the very heart of discipleship. Counting the cost and placing Christ above everything else in our lives. How radical is that call in our lives? In verse 38, Jesus says, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You probably won't know this, but this is the very first time the cross is mentioned in Matthew's account of the gospel. And in that sense, it can seem a little strange. I mean, how are the disciples to understand this uh, if Jesus hasn't talked about his own crucifixion? Yet as Grant Osborne points out, the practice of bearing the cross to one's crucifixion was well known. When the condemned prisoner bore the crossbeam, he was publicly shining forth this message. This man is as good as dead. Therefore, this, this image of Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me, is a call for self-denial. It's a metaphor for death. It says there's no limit to the amount of self-denial you must engage in to be my disciple. Now, of course, this metaphor would take up a far deeper meaning once the disciples understood that Jesus would literally take his cross to die for their sins and for the sins of the world. And so it means that for us as well. To follow a crucified Messiah is to walk in the way of the cross and to keep discovering that Jesus is worth it. Now we have a problem. Our problem with being really gripped by these words is um, we wear golden crosses around our necks. I mean, we treat them like they're jewelry. And we do not live in a world where people are put to death by being nailed to a tree. 
We miss the utter horror that crucifixion evoked in the minds of first century Jews. But when Jesus tells us to take up our cross, this is not a decorative device. It is not a mild burden. It's not simply something that marks us out as being different from those people over there. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer so memorably put it, when our Lord and Savior bids a man to come and follow him, he bids him to come and to die. Isn't that, in fact, what Jesus is saying in verse 39? Look at verse 39 with me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, in this context, finding your life means to live selfishly. Losing your life means to give away your life for the sake of the kingdom of God. Finding your life means to live selfishly, to seek the rewards of this present world that is passing away, while losing your life means to forsake the rewards of the world in order to live for God. Now, as we know from our own lives, but also throughout church history, for some people, this is much starker than it is for others. For many of us, it might mean that we're not going to get ahead at work, or we might miss out on an educational opportunity. We're going to have to deal with people that think we're odd. But for others, it means torture and even death. The Lutheran scholar Lenski puts it like this. The finder of his life is the one who, frightened at the prospect of bodily suffering and death, succeeds in warding off the latter by denying Christ. The loser of his life does the very opposite. And now the paradox. Although life is found in one way, sheltered and kept from suffering, it will be lost in a far more terrible way, lost so as to perish forever. By following the physical, fleshly promptings, it gains nothing higher than what, what these aspire to. But beloved, thankfully, the reverse is also true. Those who give away their worldly lives by clinging to Jesus Christ will find true life in him, a life that no one can ever take away. See, Jesus isn't merely calling us to follow him in the way of the cross. He is also promising us that all who follow him in the way of the cross will also receive the crown. As James, the Lord's brother, will later put it, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Furthermore, while members of our natural families may be divided from us, they may criticize or even abandon us, Jesus does not leave us as isolated disciples to fend on our own. Rather, he gives us an entirely new family. Later on in the gospel, Peter will ask Jesus this, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Do you remember what Jesus told them? And not just him, but all the disciples are asking this question. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands 
for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. See, loyalty to Jesus not only results in separation from those who reject him, it also results in a new unity and a new family. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ by God's grace, you become a child of the living God, and therefore you become a brother or sister of every other Christian who will ever live. Not just the Christians in this church, although they are particularly close to you, but of Baptists and Lutherans and Roman Catholic believers and Episcopal believers and so on. Every Christian who ever lives becomes your brother or sister in Christ the moment that you first trust in Jesus The truth is this, no matter what we do with Jesus, our commitments will result in separation from someone. We will either be separated from the world and worldly people, or we will be separated from God and godly people. So you'd better choose wisely. And remember this, Jesus is worth it. Amen.